Hey, could, if I could have you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Timothy. Now, we'll be moving into chapter 2 this morning. This is 2 Timothy, chapter 2. And we'll be taking a look at verses 1 through 7. That's 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now, as we're moving through the Christian life, if you know Jesus, you're going to find times of testing, aren't you? You're going to find times where it's, you're going to have to take a stand for who Christ is. And when you came to know Christ, when you believed in Him, the Bible made you a promise that you are now born again, that you're different. So you're saved, as Romans 5 tell, tells us, from the judgment of God. You've been justified by faith. And now the Bible teaches us that we have peace with God. We're made right with God. And this is the most important event in your life. But guys, it's the starting point. That's called salvation. Salvation is called monergistic. Mono means one. It means it's a work of God. It's all of God. He gets all the credit, all the glory. It's His work. Now that you're a Christian, now it's called sanctification. And that's called synergistic. It's God through His Spirit working in our lives. Us, out of obedience, listening to the Spirit, obeying His Word. Now we live out this life in union with Christ, working with Christ, depending on Christ by His grace. And this is really where Paul is this morning here. He wants to help Timothy bring forward the gospel message, help people come to know Christ, but he also wants Timothy to understand he is so dependent on Christ day by day. The same grace that saved Timothy is the same grace that sustains Timothy. And in chapter 1, Paul was encouraging Timothy not to be afraid of suffering. He was encouraging Timothy to take a stand for Christ, to bring forward the gospel message, to be bold in his faith, to use those gifts that God had given him. He told Timothy to guard the message, to hold on to the message, the gospel message, and to bring it forward in power. And this morning, what he wants to help Timothy do is to remain strong. He wants Timothy to remain strong in the faith. And so what we're going to see here is a set of principles that have followed will not only help Timothy to remain strong, but also will help us in a very practical way to remain strong in what we hold to, the gospel message. So let's read the text. This is chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So, so how do we remain strong in the faith? How do we remain strong in the grace that God has given us? First thing is be strong like a good steward. Be strong as a good steward. Now we know that God calls us to steward the things that he's given us. But he also calls us to, to be a good steward with the truth that he's given us. That is to pass it on to others. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. He says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men 
will be able to teach others also. So he says, therefore, remember when you see therefore, you look back, okay, what did he just say? So he was just talking to Timothy in, in verses 13 and 14 about guarding the gospel message, about holding on to the truth, never to, to sway from that, to be bold with it. And then what he does is, is Paul used two examples, if you remember. He used a negative example with, um, I think the guy's name was Phygelus, and then Hermogenes. These guys, they, they left Paul when he was in, in prison. They departed from Paul. They were afraid that they might be put into prison, and it seems that they may have also departed from the faith. But then he gave us a positive example in Onesiphorus. And if you remember, Onesiphorus, he comes and he tries to find Paul. He seeks him out. He's not afraid of what could happen to him. And then he ministered to Paul in the faith. And so he gives these two positive examples. And then he, he says to Timothy, you therefore, Timothy, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, you need to remember, Timothy's not like Paul. His personality's different. I kind of picture Paul, I, I guess fr from tradition they say he was a small man, not real handsome, you know, kind of small and scrawny. They said he had kind of a hawk nose, but man, he was bold. So Timothy, I mean, I mean Paul has this kind of inner constitution of strength that he is just going to drive and plow. He's never going to give up. Timothy's not quite like him. Timothy's a little more timid, a, a little more of afraid, and so Paul understands right now that he needs to, to help Timothy, encourage Timothy to keep moving forward. And so again, he begins here with affection. Now in chapter one, he said to Timothy, my beloved son. Here he says, Timothy, my son. He's reconnecting the relationship again here because he's gonna give him a very strong command and encouragement to keep moving forward in the faith. He says, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. So he gives him the encouragement, says, hey, you're my son. And then he goes right back in and says, and Timothy, your source of strength, by the way, is not you. He says, it's in the grace that is in Christ. Now, when you look at that section there, that, that command, be strong, it's a present passive imperative verb. That means it is a command. It's in the present tense, but it's passive. That means the strength for Timothy to stand strong, the strength for Timothy to move forward in faith is not of himself, but it's through the grace that's found in Christ. And so this very grace that, that saved Timothy, that, that brought him into the faith, this, this unmerited favor that God gives to all of us to, to, to know Jesus is also the unmerited favor that he grants to us to walk this life of faith. It's synergistic. He gives it to us, we have it, but now he calls us to walk in it, to begin to live it out, to, to be the Christian he's calling us to be, to be the man or woman of God that we're called to be. Now, Paul had already mentioned something like this in chapter 1, verse 9. If you look in your Bibles and just kind of look up a little bit. In verse 9, it says, Who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our work, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Jesus from all eternity. He saved us by grace, Paul says in verse 9. And now here he says, And now walk in grace to Timothy. Timothy, God has been so good to you. By his grace's unmerited favor, he called you. From all eternity, he knew you. And now, Timothy, that same grace is with you, son. Now walk in it. Be strong in him, Timothy. Paul is telling Timothy, don't worry about ability, Timothy. God's gonna give you the ability. I'm more worried about availability, Timothy. Are you available this morning to God? Because you need to understand that the grace that saved Jews, that the same grace that saved Paul, the same grace that was granted to Timothy is the same grace that's granted to all of us. 
It's an enabling grace, a grace of power from God, a, a gift from Him so that we can live out this Christian life. Do you believe it? And when you get a grasp of that truth, now there's a boldness in us. Now He's saying, be obedient. Walk forward in faith, Timothy. Be strong. Beloved of God, you have that grace. I have that grace to move forward in the faith. This is how John said it in John 1.16. He says, for of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. More, more grace. He gives us grace for today, and guess what? Tomorrow, he's gonna give you grace for tomorrow. For what? So that we can honor him by the way that we live. That grace that saved us is the same grace that enables us. And this strength that we have, it's not our strength. It's his strength as we move out in faith. Now, this is the way Paul put that. It's in his might. It's in the might of our Lord. Paul says this in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. He says, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? He says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. You know what he's saying there? The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that God gives you to live out the Christian life. That resurrection power that rose Jesus out of the grave is the resurrection power that you have to new life and to live out life in Christ. Will you be bold for Christ? Because when you're bold and step in faith, boom, he gives you the power to live it. The power to be faithful. The ability to be strong. James 4, 6 says, but he gives even greater grace. You could say he gives more grace. And even when you're weak, guess what? He's strong. He's strong. Even when you say, Lord, I don't think I can, but I believe I will. He's strong. And he comes under you, and he undergirds us. And this is what Paul's trying to get across to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, be strong in the power of his might, Timothy. Be strong in the grace that's been given to you, Timothy. Now, if you remember, Paul had told Timothy in chapter 1, verse 7, he says, he has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Timothy, he's given you the Holy Spirit, but that spirit is one of power, Timothy. It is one of love, Timothy. It is one of discipline, Timothy. It's not one of timidity. Move forward. Now, one commentator said this. He said, the same grace that forgives us and makes us holy is the grace that empowers us. Because we belong to Christ, we are continually in the sphere of grace, but to enjoy the sphere of blessing, we must also live in the sphere of obedience. So when we see this inner working and grace that's been promised to us, now we obey as we see the word of God direct our lives. And when we're faithful, God is even more faithful. And so Paul is pressing Timothy. He's pressing Timothy. And then he goes on and he kind of amplifies this. And if you look at verse 2, and he says, And the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. <clears throat> Paul now brings, if you will, a metaphor, a picture of a steward. One who's been given something, what are they to do with that? They're to produce it. They're to pass it on. Paul's saying, Timothy, I've given you the strength to live the Christian life. Now I want you to pass what you know, what you've learned, who you are, and pass it on to another. Be a good steward, Timothy, with what I've given to you. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Remember, Timothy had been with Paul for well over 20 years. And everywhere that they went, Timothy was with them. 
periodically he would send Timothy off to do other ministry, but there were many witnesses that saw Paul pour into Timothy's life. And Paul's saying, the same way that I poured into your life and other people saw it, I want you to do the same thing to other people, Timothy. You be like the way I was with you, and now you pass it on to somebody else. What is that? That's a steward. That's somebody that's been given something of value. And God doesn't tell us to hold on to the valuable word of God. What does he tell us to do? To spread it around, to pass it on, to train up disciples, to send them out as well. Now, if you remember, Timothy's pastoring in Ephesus at this time. Paul's in prison about to be executed. And so Paul's saying, I want to leave a legacy, Timothy. And part of that chain of legacy, this living chain of truth that I want to pass on, you're in that link. You're one of those link, Timothy. You're a link in the chain of truth that's going to go on to another person and to another person. Are you part of that link, that chain throughout history? I mean, think about it. Our Lord passed on the truth to 12, didn't he? And they then passed it on to the church fathers who then wrote it down and passed it on to others. And it's gone down all the centuries to us and now we're another link in that chain. And God is calling you and me to, to be a good steward, to be faithful with whatever the master has put under our care. Whatever God has given you, he doesn't want you to hold on to it. He wants you to release it. And there's power when you release it. There's faithfulness in that as a good steward as you minister to others. You ever notice that when you teach someone else, you have to learn it, right? And it makes you better, doesn't it? You're a good steward when, when you become a teacher towards others where you say, you know what? God has given me a stewardship. And for maybe some of you, the stewardship is your family, your children, your spouse, and so on. Maybe for others of you, it's, it's in the workplace or friends or neighbors, whatever it is, Whatever God has given you, if you look down at verse 2, it says, teach others. Teach others. You don't have to know everything. And trust me, you know so much more than many people who've never been to church. You then can pass that on. You know, I was watching this. It was a cool little video of a, a sword maker in Japan. And his name was Korea Wantanabe. And he was passing down his skills of craftsmanship to a disciple in this film. And he said, he goes, there's only 30 people today who are making a living from by being a sword maker. He says, you know, when I was younger uh, making swords, he said, I just loved it. But as I got older, I started to think I need to pass on the beauty and the soul to the Japanese people in making my swords. And he said, when I was in college, I saw a picture in a magazine of a man by the name of Akahira Mayari. And he was a grand master of knowing how to make these swords. And so I met him and he said, and he became my master. And he said, he poured into me what he knew. And now I'm pouring into others. He says, there are basically no formulas left to make what's called a Kodo sword. It's from the Han and Kakamura dynasty of 794 to 1333 AD. He says, it's impossible to recreate the exact sword. He said, but that attracts me. And he says, for 40 years, I've been learning how to make this. He goes, and it hasn't been until the last five years that I've actually made a couple that are close to it. And this is the part that got me. He says, I want my disciple to surpass me as a sword maker. He says, it's my duty to build up a disciple better than me. Otherwise, the tradition will wear thin over time. And he says, what I've received from my master is not only the technique, but also the passion for sword making. And he says, and I want my disciple to not only learn the technique, but to also have the passion that I can pass on to him. And that's my heart 
for us in the church that you would not only know the word of God, but you have the passion to share forward the word of God. You say, yeah, Pastor Rob, I mean, it's easy for you. That's your job, <laughs> right? You're supposed to pour into others. That's what you do. I think I've just been fortunate in that people have poured into me. And I have certain passions. I love to study the Word of God. I love to teach the Word of God, and I love to evangelize. So the people that I pour into, those are the things that I usually try to pour into. But you know what? My wife and I are so different. Karen loves the Word of God, and she loves to share that, but she also loves the fellowship and intimacy of prayer. And so she pours into ladies more in that direction. We're very different. Now, would my wife go street, witness, street witnessing with me? Never. I couldn't pay her. Well, maybe. <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. She doesn't. We're different. But what God has given us, we want to pour it into others. And what God has given to you, pour into others. Be a good steward. First thing, be strong like a good steward. Second thing, be strong like a soldier. Like a soldier. Now Paul's using these metaphors, these pictures, to help us understand how to live out the Christian life. And one of these ways to, to bring forward the saving grace of Christ and to live in the grace of Christ is to be like a soldier. Look at verses three and four. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Not, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So we're empowered by the grace of God. We're called to pass on what we've believed. But guys, we're gonna, we're gonna meet hardship we're going to experience difficulties being a Christian. And when you look at the text there, that, that idea suffer could also mean endure, endure hardship with me. It could be join with us in suffering. You could translate it that way. Now, it's one thing to say to God, God, I'm going to take what you've given me and I'm going to pass it on, but what if it's going to cost you something? What if it's going to hurt? Will you still pass it on? Will you still be faithful to move forward for Christ? That's what he's saying. He's saying, Timothy, join me. Be part of the Christian life. Be willing to endure suffering. Now, Paul already said this to Timothy in chapter 1, here in 2 Timothy, verse 8. Let me share with you that. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And now he's reinforcing that again here. He's saying, Timothy, come and join me again. But Timothy, you don't need to join me, just join me, but I want you to join me as a soldier. Now, Paul loves this idea, this metaphor of a soldier. He had already told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.8, fight the good fight. He had a friend by the name of Paphroditus who, who was from the church in Philippi, and, and he called him a fellow soldier. And so this is just kind of a theme for Paul. He, he understands that, that what soldiers are is they're committed. And whether it's difficult or not, what are they committed to? They're committed to the mission, aren't they? And whatever that mission is, whatever their orders are, they're going to be committed to it and they're going to fulfill it to the best of their ability. And what do soldiers have? They have a commanding officer. And we have a commanding officer, our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he commands us and he shows us in the word of God what to do, we are to say, yes, sir, and we obey our commanding officer. One writer put it like this. He said, Paul called Timothy to adopt the focus of a soldier. This is not merely a short-term concentration of a man under fire, but a long-term dedication of a warrior, setting aside all the concerns of this life to win the campaign. Now, what else happens with soldiers? Soldiers also kind of have that band of brothers, don't they? 
There's a unique relationship that we as Christians have together. And when we serve together, it's like the same thing as soldiers on, on a battlefield. And by the way, the fact that he's saying a soldier, what does it imply? That there's a war. Do you understand that this Christian life is a battle, that it's a war? Not only do we become children of God, but we become soldiers of Christ. And in the war, we are to fight for what's right. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 6.10. He says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and take unto you the whole armor of God so that you may able, be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and so on. So Paul takes this idea about warfare, of being a soldier, very seriously. He says in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare, they're not of the flesh. They're not carnal, but they're supernatural. And they're powerful for the pulling down of satanic forces. So one thing about a soldier is they know their weapons, don't they? And so what are our weapons? Well, first it is prayer. Since we're standing in the power of his might, we call upon our commander to be powerful on our behalf. And he's given us the word of God, which is powerful. We bring the word of God. He's given us the gospel message. The gospel message is power unto salvation. He's given us our life, the Christian life, a life of character, integrity, truthfulness. All these things are our weapons in this fight against the enemy. But we're not only to be just a soldier. What does he say there? He says we're to be a good soldier. That means noble or excellent one who honors Christ by our actions, where nobody can bring an offense against you or the church because of your life, your testimony. Being a Christian is also one of courage, isn't it? It's a willingness to step forward. One thing about courage, courage is not not being afraid. Courage is being afraid but moving forward anyway. It's a willingness to understand that Christ is there. And even though I might be a little fearful, I'm willing to say, Lord, I do this because I know you're in it. And I'm willing to move forward. Now Paul says, kind of taking that analogy further, if you look at verse 4, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. He's saying, okay, Timothy, you have this attitude as a soldier. Now Paul could have been thinking about the Roman military code of service. Let me read you a little passage from that. It says, we forbid men engaged in military service to engage in civilian occupations. In other words, those people that served as a soldier in Rome, they couldn't also have a part-time job. They didn't want them split, their focus split. And I think Paul kind of has this in mind. There's a spiritual application here. A good soldier of Christ Jesus, he has a single-minded devotion to Christ. And even though we live in this world, we're not of the world. Even though we might partake in the things of this world, we have a higher purpose, a higher calling, an area that we serve first. He's saying that the desires and the cares of this world do not take over the commitment that we have to Christ and our duties as a good soldier in Christ. And a good soldier intentionally avoids being entangled in the things that would be distracting. Too much entertainment, uh, giving yourselves over too much to politics, giving yourself over too much to things of this world and have it pull you away from your devotion and your focus and your, your need of serving Christ. Because a soldier that is distracted ends up being a dead soldier. And he's saying, be very careful. Know your orders. Be faithful in that. And also a soldier, if he is commanded to leave this country and has to go on a foreign field, even has to leave his family behind, what he's saying, 
He takes his orders first and he takes his command first. It is first in his life. In other words, he has complete loyalty to the office of what he's called to. Do you have complete loyalty to our Lord? Now, some people, they want to please themselves, don't they? They say, well, I'm a Christian, but this whole idea about suffering, this whole idea about doing certain things, I just don't know. I want to show you three men that were being called to be soldiers, but they failed. Okay, this is in the book of Luke. If you could turn to the book of Luke, keep your finger there in 2 Timothy. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and we'll start in verse 57, and we'll work our way down to verse 62. Now, Jesus had a number of people following him. They claimed to be his disciples. And we're going to see three different men that, that questioned Christ, and, and we're going to see his response. These men are called into service. Let's see what happens. So in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 57, it says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, being Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, when that man heard that, I don't think he had that in mind. That man's thinking, hey, I'll follow you, Lord, as long as we got like an inn to stay in. I got a bed, right? I got a little food at night, someplace kind of warm, a fire, that kind of stuff. But as soon as he heard, it's going to cost? I mean, I don't get comfort? I, I, really? I'll never forget when Pastor Neil and I went to Thailand. I got asked to go to Thailand at a men's retreat. I stayed awake all night after I got asked. Why? There's bugs there. <laughs> and it was in a refugee camp. It wasn't like in a hotel. I'm like, that's a cost there. And I was freaked. And then in the morning I said, okay, Lord, I'll just do it. I trust you in this one. This man, I don't think, went forward. I think he wanted the comfort of the life. I think he wanted something comfortable. And when he realized there was a cost in that, oh, he was out. But a soldier does not give up. There's another man in verse 59. Let's look at 59 and 60. It says, and he said to another one, you follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. The implication here is that his father hadn't died yet if you understand the context of this passage. And in that, in that society, you basically hung around the home until the father died, and then you got your inheritance, and you could go do what you want to do. This man could live another 10 years. So basically what he's saying is, Lord, I really want to spend time with you, and yeah, I'm committed, but you know, I'm going to take care of this stuff first, and then, you know, when it's all taken care of, then, then I'll follow you, Lord. And he says, no, you follow me. The idea here is the priorities are wrong. Not even family obligations override what God is calling you to do. He's saying, Lord first, Jesus first in all things. He is the commander. Is the priority of your life the mission of Christ? That's the question. And there's a last example. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Some of you have started strong. Some of you started strong in the faith. And, and sometimes, though, when you talk to that person now, they always talk in the past, don't they? I remember when Jesus did this, or I remember when this. But the life you're living now, you took your eyes off the commander, eyes off Christ, and you started to look back. Now, the problem with that, he's talking about somebody plowing a field, right? And usually it was with two oxen. So you got your hands to the plow, you look, look back, that's what happens. You get off track, don't you? He said, no one who looks back. 
I think these are people that started looking back to the old life, started looking back to the sinful habits of life, started looking back to when they were unfaithful to the Lord and it started to look attractive to them again. And they say, I want that back, Lord. It's kind of like the Israelites. Remember when they were in, in Israel? I mean, they got saved on, in the Exodus and, and then they said, you know, we want the leeks and onions back in slavery. They were looking back, even though God had freed them. He's saying, don't be like, he says, because they're not fit for the kingdom of God. You keep your eyes focused on Christ. This is what Jesus said. Everyone who has left houses, brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or farms for my name's sake, he will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. He's saying, what I will give you and what I give you is so much greater than what you have. You keep moving forward. Guys, I, I realized that the Christian life was a war kind of early on. I, I had some friends that talked me into being involved in, in evangelism. And if you've done a fair amount of evangelism, you'll realize pretty quickly that this is a spiritual war. And this is kind of how it looks. When you go out street evangelizing or you talk to people, you know, when you first talk to them, it's not usually not too bad. It's kind of an, an open dialogue. But as soon as you get close to where the cross is, <laughs> like all hell breaks loose. And I can tell you time and time again, the phone would ring, the bar dog would bark, uh, you get interrupted, uh, all of a sudden they go, oh, 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 like that kind of thing. When you start talking about their sin and how Christ paid for, for their sin on the cross and how they must receive Christ, things start to take place. This just happened a few weeks right here in this building. There was one of the guys who works um, from the air conditioning company that we, we use, and he was here checking out the thermostat in my office, and and he said something like, you know, my wife and I are thinking about coming back to church. And I was like, oh, cool. And I said, can I ask you a question? And he goes, yeah. I go, are you heaven ready? And he looked at me and he goes, heaven ready? I go, yeah, well, you go to heaven when you die. And he goes, yeah, no problem. And I go, why? Uh, I'm a good person, man. My wife and I, we used to go to church. And he started talking about all the stuff they did. And I said, can I tell you what the Bible says? He says, sure. And he's in my office, so he sits down on this little couch in my office, and he sits kind of looking at me intently, and so I start sharing the gospel. You know, I said, did you know that God loves you so much? And I said, he, he wants to give you heaven. And I said, but we got a problem. I said, because of your sin, it separated you from God. And I said, but he loves you. And I said, he's a God of mercy. I said, but he's gonna have to judge your sin, so that's why he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross. I'm not kidding. As soon as I said that, his phone rang. He went, oh my gosh, an emergency. He got up, and he just was out of there. And I was like, that's warfare. Because I never got to finish. And so often that'll happen to you. It's a war. But what are we to be? Soldiers for Christ. Two things. We're to be a good steward, a soldier. Third one. How do we remain strong in the faith? Be strong like an athlete. Like an athlete. Paul, again, this is another metaphor, another picture of what Paul likes to talk about. Athletics. He says in verse 5, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Competes like an athlete. I think Paul has always talks about a lot of these kind of metaphors, these pictures. Paul talks about a wrestler in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. That's Ephesians 6.12. He also uses the idea about a boxer or a runner in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, he says, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, and I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body, I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, that I myself will not be disqualified. What Paul again is talking about, says, Timothy, I want to give you another attitude adjustment here. 
I want you to have the attitude of an athlete. And not ju just any athlete, but an athlete who competes. Now, when an athlete competes, what do they want to do? They want to win. That's the idea. You don't complete, compete unless you want to be out there and you want to get past the goal. And the main thing is you want to win. He's saying, Timothy, I want you to be that kind of athlete. I want you to think about who you are, and now I want you to press forward as an athlete for Christ. Now, I can tell you, in church, there's usually three types of people. The first group, we might call them uncommitted intellectuals. They come here. They have an intellectual mind. They're interested in the things taught by the Bible, but they really aren't really interested in knowing Christ personally, receiving Christ, living out the Christian life. They just come to church to kind of hear the, the information. They're intellectuals, and it's all here. There's no heart. The other one would be a group that they're believers, but they're not really in the race. They come to church. They kind of attend. Um, they're willing to kind of participate. They like to listen to Bible studies, but to get them actually to run, to participate, to serve the Lord, to be active in service, to be part of what God is doing is very difficult for them. They just want to kind of cruise. And, and I, I kind of think, of, when I picture them in my mind, they're kind of fat and happy. You know, they got all this stuff inside, but they never give anything back out. But then you have this third group, and they're fit and trim. Man, they're athletes. And they cannot wait to serve the Lord. They want to give back what they've been given. And they're in the race. They're moving forward for Christ's sake. This is how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. He says, do you not know that those who run in the race all run, but only one receives the prize? He says, run in such a way as to win. So there's an assumption here that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. He's saying, if you're a Christian, first of all, you better be in the race, but second of all, you run to win. That's the idea. There's a thought behind it that we are to press forward towards the goal. Now, Paul says in Philippians another idea about a runner. Listen to how he puts it, Philippians 3, 13 and 14. He says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. You have that picture, don't you, of a, of a runner, and, and he sees it, he can see the finish line, and he is straining because he knows he wants to get there. And the kind of race that we're in, it's not a sprint. It's not even what we call a, you guys remember the 440s when you're in high school? Basically one, one time around the track. I used to do that. Not those kind of races. Those are sprints. They're, they're fast. He, he's talking about a marathon. Well, how long is that, Pastor Rob? Until you die. <laughs> we're in this race until we reach that line. And he's saying, it's a marathon. And so what do marathon runners have to do? They have to train. They have to be disciplined. They have to have focus, and that's the idea that Paul's getting at here. Are you a disciplined Christian? Are you a focused Christian? Are you willing to put in the energy and the time so that when that race, in that race, you're gonna have endurance, that you can make it all to the end? It's with this attitude to win, with this attitude of competing, with this attitude to be disciplined, an attitude that, Lord, I wanna serve you until the day I die. An athlete does not win the prize, though, he says here in verse 5, unless he competes, what, according to the rules. So there are some rules, and I think in Paul's mind, he's thinking about the Greek Olympic Games, and there were certain rules for the Greeks. Number one is they had to be true-born Greek. They had to be Greek by descent. You could not compete in those original Olympic Games unless you were Greek. Secondly, you had to prepare for 10 months, so every athlete had a 10-month window, and they had to prepare for 10 months, and then after the 10 months, 
they had to stand before the statue of Zeus and they had to say, I did prepare for 10 months. If they lied, they gave Zeus the, the commitment that he could take their life. And then third, they had to follow the rules of the game. So whatever event they were in, there were certain rules that applied. And I think we can take that same thing and apply it to us today spiritually. Number one, you gotta be truly born again. You have to be a true born Christian. You need to know Jesus. It's not just head knowledge. You're invested. He's my Lord. I worship Him and Him alone. But then, as a strong believer, you train in the matters of self-denial and discipline. You seek the Lord regularly every day. You must be motivated, looking forward to the reward, that end goal, knowing that heaven is there, but the way you run the race now really matters. Are you focused and disciplined in the Lord? Now remember, sanctification, it's synergistic, so Christ is right there with you. He's helping you. When you're stumbling, he's picking you up. He's your biggest fan. Come on, you can do this, right? But we gotta run the race. We gotta be in it. We need to be committed. So Christ-like life is like an athlete. What does an athlete do? He trains every day. Do you train every day? Are you in the word of God and prayer every day? An athlete eats only what's good for him. He doesn't eat junk food, but how about you? You putting the TV junk in, the internet junk in? Are you ruining the very soul that he bought for you? Athletes stay focused on the goal. They understand. At the very end, they want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Strive towards finishing for the prize. Now, I told you I ran the 440. When I was in junior high, we had a little track team and so they trained me on how to do the 440. And that's one, I remember correctly, it was one time around the track. And the way they trained me is you run all out. I mean, it was a sprint from the moment you left and you ran a sprint all the way until you finished that line. And so that's how I trained, day after day, week after week. And I remember we had this one meet about somewhere in the middle of the season and it was against a school we were competing against. And, and the coach came up to me and said, hey, Meller, he says, I need you to run the mile instead today. And I'm like, okay. I'd never run a mile. I'd only trained to do the 440. So when that gun went off, guess what I did? I sprinted. I mean, I was way out in front, man. I'm like half a track ahead of everybody. So that first lap, I'm first one across. My, my coach is going, yeah, Miller, yeah. He's thinking, wow, a star. Well, you know, the, yeah, right? I'm about two-thirds away the second lap. And I'm not kidding, my lungs were on fire. And my legs suddenly felt like I had weights on them. And by the time I was finishing that second lap, all of a sudden I'm hearing the footsteps of the, of the guys behind me. Halfway through the third lap, I started getting passed, right? And they're all passing me. Now the fourth lap, it was me and one guy. And I was determined, I'm not going to be last in this thing. <laughs> and so I literally gutted it all the way across, and I was next to last. Why was that? I hadn't trained. I hadn't prepared myself. And so I didn't do very well in that race. God is calling us as Christians to be prepared. He wants us to put all we have but to train well for it. Some of you think, well, Pastor Rob, I, you don't understand. I work long hours and I just don't have time to invest. This is how athletes typically do it. They start out in very small chunks, don't they? They don't go out and run the marathon. So here would be an encouragement for you. In the morning, set your clock 20 minutes earlier. And just say, Lord, I'll give you the first 20 minutes. Five minutes in prayer, 15 minutes in the word. If you're not a morning person, put a Bible by your bed at night. And instead of watching TV until you turn off the lights, turn that thing off. 
Give yourself that last half an hour, that last 45 minutes, and be in the Word of God. Just those two minor changes will recorrect your course action. And it would be amazing where you are in two to three months from now. And then, what an athlete does add a little bit more, don't they? Instead of 20 minutes, maybe yeah, another 10, go 30. 10 minutes of prayer. Be an athlete. Three things. Be like a good steward, a soldier, an athlete. Here's the final one. Be like a farmer. Be strong like a farmer. Here's the deal. Farmers work hard. Farmers are patient. Look at the text. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, the hardworking farmer, this is really hard for us in a city to really kind of put our head around unless you were raised in that. And I think Paul's thinking here that, you know, as a steward, you have the joy, right, of sharing with others and seeing them grow. And, and when you're in, in a battle, there's a certain point where there's victory, and oh, yeah. And as an athlete, there's usually the prize, and you get all that. But, but what is it with the farmer? Basically, they're hardworking. That's it. A hardworking farmer that's a participle of a verb is copeo, and it means to toil intensely, to sweat to the point of exhaustion. Here's the picture. He plows, he sows, he tends, he reaps, he, he fights frost and heat, sometimes too much water, sometimes not enough water, sometimes there's bugs, sometimes there's weed. It's day in, day out. He's up as soon as the sun is up, and he goes down when there's absolutely no more light left. He's a hard-working person. And sometimes this is very difficult for those in ministry because there's not a lot of reward, is there, to farming? You've got to wait. And sometimes ministry is like that. One of the hardest things for me 10 years ago when I first came on staff as a pastor, I came out of the sales industry. Now, for sales guys, you get instant gratification. You make a big sale, everybody knows about it because you're telling everybody, and they're like, woo-hoo-hoo. And then you get a check at the end. I sold more, more commission. Ministry's not like that. You pray, you work, you toil, you, you, you teach the Word of God, and sometimes you don't see the fruit of what God is bringing. Sometimes never, sometimes not for years. It's up to the Lord to show you the fruit, isn't it? Well, what does that call for? Patience. Patience. A farmer is patient. He's willing to wait. Now, James chapter 5, verse 7 speaks about this and says this, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient until he gets the early and late rains. Early rains were October through November, and in Palestine, that's when they did most of the planting. Heavy rains and kind of watered everything. Late rains are spring, April, and May. What this represents is a process. And James is saying, submit yourself to the process. And guys, the, the Christian life is a process, and we have to submit ourselves to be patiently waiting on the Lord. Not only are we hardworking, but we're willing to wait for God to bring in the produce, for Him to do the work. But Lord, why would we do that if it's so hard? Verse 6, because we get, we get to be the first to partake of the crops. The farmer is the first one, and he gets the first fruits. And I think what he's saying here is that God will bless you when you work hard, when you patiently wait, that you'll get to participate in the joy and the part of ministry that's, that's just a blessing, and you see God move, you were involved in from the beginning, and now you see the fruit, and it's like, praise the Lord. I get part of that blessing. That's what he's pointing to here. First time I planted the seed of the gospel in my sister Barbara was 21 years ago. We moved my mother and my stepfather, Ollie, out of Wyoming. He developed Parkinson's, and we moved in here to California, and I volunteered to drive the rental rider truck 
Big mistake. That was, that was a nightmare. And so my sister said, I'll come with you. That was a four-day trip from Wyoming to here. I had a captive audience. Four days with me. Guys, I was playing Christian music. I was sharing the gospel every chance I could. I was figuring all kinds of ways to plant seeds in my sister. She was as hard as a stone. I mean, I didn't get anywhere with her. She was not interested. I mean, even in the least. That was 21 years ago. And then over the years, I've tried to plant. I've been praying and this and that. Then last May, I'm here, and my sister Lee was standing right back there in that corner door, and I heard her say, hey, Rob, and I turned around, and my sister's standing there with my mother and my brother who had come to the Lord the previous year. I'm like, Barb. And I had to run upstairs to teach a pastor for Ruth's, and I said, come with me, Barb, and she comes out there. No kidding, I'm preaching with an interpreter, and she's crying through the whole message. I'm going, this is weird. And then we go out to lunch. She's talking about Jesus and about the Christian faith, and I'm just kind of looking at each other like, this is weird. And then afterwards, I say, Barb, you want to talk? And we begin to talk, and I got to lead my sister to Christ. There was fruit, visible. How long did it take? 21 years. 21 years. Planted a seed in a truck. <laughs> water, 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 water. Wait, wait, wait. Patient, patient, patient. There was fruit. Now, that's one kind of fruit. And some of you may say, well, Pastor Rob, I've never had that kind of fruit, and I'm kind of frustrated. I don't see the fruit in my life. Well, let me ask you. Do you love Jesus more now than you did when you were first a Christian? Do you see that you sin less than you used to? Not that you're sinless, but you sin less. Do you find that, that God opens doors for you of ministry periodically when he never did before? These are all evidences of fruit. These are all evidences of his faithfulness and you being a faithful farmer. Trust him. Four pictures for us, a good steward a good soldier, a good athlete, and a good farmer. Let's pray. Well, Father, I, I love the way Paul thinks in his mind with pictures. So I would pray now, Lord, as we close the service, that you would meet us here by your Spirit. Speak to our hearts, Father. Minister to us with your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Could I please have you stand?